לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malaman, Rabbi of the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Chimene in Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter Day School in Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed in New York City. It's great to see you guys. We're recording this on a Friday, the air of Shabbat. This is the one of the last moments before Shabbat. We've all had busy weeks. It's great to now delve into what I want to say is not only an amazing Parsha, but it's probably the most consequential Parsha in the book of Bamidbar, uh, the pivotal Parsha, the turning point. Uh, if we can just elaborate on that for a second, because because we know what's going to happen. Let, let, let's just uh, take the the, the 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 topic notes of the of the Parsha. That is, this is where Moses Moshe dispatches. 12 scouts to look at the land. The scouts come back with a negative report, and from there we get the sentence that the people of Israel are to journey into the desert for 40 years. But So that's the crisis. Going into it, the Parsha begins like this. Send, you, you send, Moshe, you send, Anashim, men. And go explore the land of Canaan, that I'm giving to the children of Israel. One man, one man for every tribe of your father, of their fathers, shall be sent. Each one a prince. So we have so many questions even about the first verse here. Why? And what's the purpose of dispatching the scouts. What's going on here? Is there a setup here or is there a challenge here? Why is Moses, and how does the story then figure into the life of Moses? We'll talk about how he reflects upon it even later on. Barry, I'm going to turn to you to explain some of the motivation here behind sending, and maybe you can elaborate on, you know, what's what's at stake here? What's going on? So, the first thing that catches our attention, I think, is the formulation, Shalach Lacha, you shall send, which echoes the first commandment to Avraham, or Avram at the time in the Breshit, Parakut Bet, chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, when God says, Lach Lacha, you shall go. And what's important to notice here is that in Genesis, Abraham is told to go and he goes. Here, Moses is told to send forth. And the question that we have to ask is, why does he not go himself? And I think that what we're seeing here is the beginning of a shift in leadership that we often forget when we read most of the Torah that Moses is 80 years old. You know, he's lived a long life already, even though he's got 40 more years to go, we know at the end. But 
I think that what we're seeing here is an attempt to transfer leadership to the younger generation. And therefore, the spies are going out, not as Moses's colleagues, his peers, but as the next generation, the people that are supposed to inherit the land and build the Israelite community there. And so he sends 12 men, each of them a prince, and um, to see how they will gauge the land. You know, they've grown up in Egypt. They've been miraculously redeemed. They're now in the wilderness. They're close enough to the land where they can enter it speedily. And what are they going to do with it? You know, they have come all this way, and now they're at the gates. Okay, so just to interject here, we've already seen 12 leaders of the tribes, right? Back in Parshat Naso a couple of weeks ago, we had a very long, elaborate uh, parade of gifts, uh, you know, over 12 days with people like Nachshon ben Amidav and El Yosef ben Deuel and all those 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 people. So why not those? Why these? These here we have uh, Shamua ben Zakur, uh, Shafat ben Chori. We have Palti ben Rafu, Amiel ben Gamali, Situr ben Michael. They're actually the names sound a little different than the the names that we we saw in Nasa, the, the the tribal chieftains. So. Are you saying that, and, 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 and here I'm going to lead you here, I want to think the, this might be the, the younger generation? They're, they're there. Yeah, I, I think so. I think the ones that we meet in, in the first chapter of the Book of Numbers are the adults in the room. They're the leaders of the tribes, and now we're sending a new generation. I think it's very difficult to, um, you know, the, the Torah actually it's not always consistent. I mean, back in, in Exodus, one of the first things that happens as they leave Egypt is they fight this battle with Amalek and Yehoshua ben Nun is the chief general. Okay. It's, it's, it doesn't really make sense to think that, um, uh, that, that Yehoshua is presented here in Numbers 13, in which he's actually called Hosea ben Nun and Moses gives him this, this new nickname of Yehoshua indicating that he will be a source of salvation, that it's like the same conceptualized character. We've, we've seen a bunch of different aspects of Yoshua. He is, he is Moshe's na'ar, he's Moshe's like a junior he's servant. His body, he's his body man. He's a body man. Um, so, I mean, it could well be so that this is the younger generation. Uh, perhaps the, the inclusion of Joshua then, you know, because he was that big general back in in. Parshat B'Shalach, uh, maybe, maybe we just, you know, read those two things differently, or we say that uh, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's called out Darshani in some way or another. I feel that the, um, that the need to, to bring in these, these, you know, Miraglim, uh, although as we discussed before, before we started recording, the tradition calls them Miraglim, the spies, that word actually doesn't appear in, in the parashah. It appears in what will be the Haftarah, the spies who get sent to, to check out Jericho. Um, I feel that there is a fundamentally good plan, which is to say that, that, the, that the job for the people coming up in conquering the promised land is going to be massive, is going to be totally transformative. Um, it is going to shape everything that comes in its wake. And so what I think is going on here, and this is the shlach lechas, send for your own benefit, um, is to 
it doesn't work, but it is the point of it is to win the excitement, the enthusiasm, the commitment that really have to get the deep skin in the game uh, for all the tribes to, 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 to rise to the occasion of what is before them. And the attempt, which as we know, doesn't really succeed, but the attempt is to say each and every group among us, each and every sector of society, we all need our best people to buy in, to, to be committed and to, to play their own leadership role in what is about to ensue. Can we talk for a minute about, about Kalev and Yoshua? Because these two are the, are the they, they end up being the minority. They, they will have the render the positive opinion about, about the, um, the land. But um, we know, of course, that Yoshua has a very, very special relationship with Moshe. Already, we've seen him in, uh, he's the Misharet Moshe, the, you know, um, I, I call him the body man. He's really, you know, next, and he will be designated as the leader. He's the leader designate, basically. So already he's, we know that he's younger. Kalev, a little more um, ambiguous or, or cloudy about who Kalev is. Of course, the tradition makes Kalev into um, a, almost a relative of Moshe. There's one source that says that Kalev was Moses' brother-in-law, uh, that, that he, he may have been the second husband of Miriam. What I'm saying is that by selecting Yoshua and Kalev, Moses is putting loyalists in the group. And the loyalists are the people that will not only represent Moses to the group, but they will represent the group to Moses. And that, I think, causes a bit of instability. That is to say that this group already has uh, factions among it. The Yoshua Kalev faction is already embedded in there from the beginning. It's destabilizing. And, and so go ahead, comment on that, Jerry. No, so, so you feel like um, you, you feel like Moses tried to 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 put his thumb on the scale a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting. You, I just wanted to comment on one thing you said. You know, the good report of the land. Actually, I think that everybody gives a good report of the land. Moshe asks them, "Go check out the land. See if it's a good land, you know, or bad. If there, if it is, if it is abundant or poor. If there's." Lots of trees or not. It's like there's not really a question. He's in each of those cases. This is the promised land which God has sworn to our ancestors. Go see if it stinks. Okay, it doesn't stink. The land is good. And the people come back with, yeah, man, this is this land is great. What they come back with a bad report about is themselves. Yeah. Right. They they come back not that the that the land that God swore to Abraham Yitzchak and promised us all these generations we've been getting. It's not the land is bad. The land is terrific. Um, but we're not up to the task. And so, you know, I, it, I find it incredibly stirring, you know, the, the Kalev and Yehoshua, really it's just Kalev, Yehoshua is a kind of along for the ride um, in which he gives the speech and says, you know, let's go up, we're up to this, we can do it. And uh, the, um, and not to turn this into a contemporary Zionist allegory, which I think is actually quite misplaced, um, because it can make you do stupid things, but it's kind of the story of, of you know, much of Zionism is right. Like, oh, you can't do that. Oh, yes, we can. Actually, watch us. We we in fact we infected. Um, I think. I mean, uh, not to not to focus too much on it, but but Zionism, on some level, was was a deliberate inversion of this. A, a deliberate, the Kalev people, absolutely. To to 
deliberately invert the, the negative sense that we can't do this. No, that Zionism is, we can do this. We can do this. And, and yes, we're outnumbered. Yes, there, but, but we, we will prevail. We have, to, we have no choice, Zionism. So there is another political dimension to this. And you know, we have to imagine the Israelites, they've been wandering now for over a year. And um, I, I think the, the charge that Moses gives to the spies is, is this land more the same, like where we've been the last year, or is this really the promised land? We know it's the promised land, but how are they supposed to know? And you know, we take a lot of things for granted, I think, sometimes when we read the story, that we have to unimagine, as it were, because the Israelites don't know they're going... I mean, they know they're going to the promised land, but they don't know what the promised land is. It's not a land that they've ever been to before. And so when they get there, they have to cross a river, as we know. And I remember the first time I saw the Jordan River, I wondered what the fuss was. It looked like a little ribbon that you could step over. Um, they, they need to know that they've reached their destination. And the land, as Jeremy pointed out, is is a different land. It's not what they where they've been. It is a land worthy of inhabiting. And the question, of course, is whether they're the they're going to be the worthy inhabitants. So, what, that, do you, what do you do about the the image? So, so the 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 ten of the twelve spies agree that the land is great, and they sap people's enthusiasm, and they say we're not up to it, and they're much bigger than we are, and we're going to get our we're going to get our, our butts kicked if we do this. Uh, they're giants in the land. And there's a detail in that that, that strikes me as kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the logo of the tourism ministry in Israel. And, and it's the, that they come and they bring abundant, totally amazing fruit. They bring these, these um, you know, the, whatever the branches, vine branches, so heavy that it takes two guys to carry. So if the, uh, if the 10 spies, uh, I know Elliot, you, you, you feel that they're kind of destructive and nihilistic, which you should you know, elaborate on that. If, if, they want to, if, they want, if they want to ruin it, if they want to break it, why bring the fruit? The fruit is going to only um, uh, serve as evidence that it's worth trying. You, know, you might fail. But no, I, I think there, the, the fruit actually lends itself to two different interpretations. You could bring the fruit and say, look how wonderful this fruit is. It takes two of us to carry it. Or you could say, we can barely manage this fruit. This land is not for us. So I think it works on both ways, on both levels. And each person has to decide whether this is the fruit that we want to eat or the job is too burdensome for us. We'll let it be. We're not, we're not worthy. We're not worthy of this fruit, right? And, this is a, this is a um, you know, in, in a sense, this is a, like, macro question about religion. Um, God is great, people stink. Like, that. one, one way to look at um, religion is that God is great, world is great, people stink, people sin, people fail, and perhaps that's the religious attitude of the spies. God promises land to the great Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is totally right. This is fabulous. And look at, look at us in our miserable poverty. We, we're just not up to that, as, as Barry said. 
This fruit is like a symbol of divine blessing. We're not, we can't handle that. As opposed to the other, the other version, which is in the words of the rabbis, to be God's partners in creation. Um, God is great and people are great. And in fact, we, we and God work together and that's more of the Kalev and Yehoshua view. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to ask, you know, a kind of elementary question. What's the, what's the frame in which we need to see the story? Is this, is this a setup for failure or is this the, the story that, that has all the best intentions that Moses is like, yeah, go, go get the land, go see. We want, I want to engage this group as a group that will be my uh, eyes and ears, that will be my agents, my public relations agents for the project that will come. And I'm so excited about this. I'm so delighted about this. But, but in order to do this effectively, I need you. I need your partnership here. Go see and because you will see you you will have legitimacy because you are the first-hand witnesses to the land and that's how i want it to go right what, what's the frame here is it a, i mean and this in in some ways this question mirrors the conflict or um, a, a bit a bit of a debate among commentaries you have rashi on the one hand saying that this was a basically a setup for failure and you have ramban saying no this is you know, to, to, in, in, in order to elicit um, positive feeling and joy, and that you are going to be the public relations arm. What, how do you, what do you think? Wait, what, what's the, uh, talk, talk me through why, why the setup for failure kind of makes sense. Because they should have known, they should have known, you know, it's like the, the setup for failure is uh, Moses, I've already told you that the land is good, right? The, because at the, at the burning bush, God has already said to Moses that the land is good. Uh, following the burning bush episode, it's Eretz Megurehem. So there, there, there is a knowledge that the land is good, that the land was promised, and that and the land has ancestral heritage to it. It's a, the, the, our fathers have been in that land, okay? Um, so in a, in, a, in a sense, he doesn't need to go. He doesn't need to send anybody there. So the only reason why would be to see what they do is a test, basically. And, and as we all know. So I want to offer a slightly different interpretation. I think the purpose of the mission is to ascertain what the land is like. And the key to the word ascertain is the last part of it, which is certain. The great existential question that we all confront almost every day is one of uncertainty. We just do not know how things will turn out. And that could be a great burden because we want to know what the end is going to be sometimes before we get to the end. And, you know, we read the Torah as if it's describing something that is unfolding in real time. And so Moses this week is sending the spies out, but the Torah as a written text comes afterwards. It's already the interpretation of what happened. And the people want to know for sure what is coming. And you can never know for sure. You can only live your life day by day. And sometimes good things will happen and sometimes bad things will happen. And you have to pick yourself up each day and go through it to see how it ends. It's not given in advance. And I think in some sense, the spies want it to be given in advance. They want to know that this is our land and we're going to live here. 
but it's not going to be an easy process. And that's what troubles them, I think, is that they lack a commitment to do the necessary work to take the land and settle it. I like, I like uh, among the things that you said, uh, I like the, you know, I think it's very sharp to note that by the time anybody ever read the Torah, they knew the story. Okay. By the time, this is true about everything in the Bible, <laughs> by the time anybody ever read it, they already knew that they were, um, you know, that, that in our ancient past, there was a, a failed attempt to enter the land and it produced a long, you know, a long um, uh, period of, of wandering. By the way, we also have, speaking of Zionist allegory, we also have the case of the Ma'apilim. After they, after they uh, uh, Ma'apilim in, Zion, in, in modern parlance, means the illegal immigrants post-World War II when the British were keeping them out. But in, in the Torah, that's not what it means. It means that after they, they decide not to move in, God, uh, then they go ahead and God says, like, sorry, you know, time's passed. And they said, no, 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 we'll try, we'll try. And then they get, they get, they get whooped. But um, by the time anybody ever read this story, they know that there was a failure in their past. And I appreciate very much the thought that religion can't be just the fairy tale that says, you know, everything's always going to work out the way you want. It. It's all just wish fulfillment. It actually sometimes also has to give you the resources to deal with frustration and failure. And so this story is such a thing. Uh, it, it can absolutely function that way. I am inclined to uh, not to think this is a setup for failure. As I alluded before, I think that this, that the, that the um, designation of the, of the, of the scouts is a great idea, a well-intentioned well attempt to win the people's commitment to what is going to be a transformative project. And if I if I was going to say something negative, this, well, this is now speculative, it's not that the Torah says this, but if I was going to say something negative about the 10 spies and why they might, why they, why they might have wanted secretly to fail, is that each of the each of the scouts are princes. Maybe they like their current power. Maybe they like the current hierarchies in society. And they've got to know that after we all immigrate to a different place and settle and have different lives, uh, who knows if, if we're going to remain in power. Maybe they, maybe they don't want to expose themselves to um, all that's going to happen in the, in the wake of settling the land. But in principle, I think that Moshe and, and God... Um, expect that what's going to happen is that this is going to be a meaningful step on getting everybody ready for this huge project. Or maybe, maybe as you alluded before, I, I, you know, maybe they're nihilists. Maybe, maybe they just don't, they, maybe they just want to destroy the whole project. Or maybe they, they have already gotten a sense that, that Moses's leadership is, is questionable. Um, and that they have, they have, um, challenges. They have objections to his leadership. There is no check and balance in the mosaic in Moses system. There's no, there's no equal co-equal branches. It's it's in the United States either at the moment. Let me tell you. <laughs> That's right. No, but so okay. So so there's there's a lot of from I, I you know we were talking before about and my question before was where do you think it went wrong? Where where at what Point in the in the journey. If you were writing the the you know the sketch of you know their conversations, you know what day is it? What's you know at what point you know 
and and of course it's all imagined and all speculation but but something must have happened maybe and i'm saying maybe something happened before because yoshua and kalev are, are are already a separate entity based on at least yoshua and and of course i'm you know projecting back into the story what what happens in later israel that judah and ephraim are the predominant tribes but but you know put 12 people on a journey and give them experiences and they're gonna they're gonna be transformed. I, I think I mean you know literarily forty days. They're there for forty days. Forty days is the symbolic number of transformation. Moses is up on the mountain for forty days, right? We have forty days between Rosh Chodesh Elul and Yom Kippur. It's a very convenient you know frame to 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 evoke the sense of transformation that can happen. Maybe they started out as decent people and maybe they ended up as rogues. Well, if we take the tale at its word, the failure is when they start speaking, when they come back. Okay. Right? That's when they, that's the first time we hear that there might be something wrong with what they did. Because right. they say that we, uh, we felt ourselves like grasshoppers, and so they imagined us to be. I, we, we were talking about the, the way that it is framed. They, they, they say the positive and then they say the negative when, you know, as opposed to saying, look, you know, we got some challenges ahead, but we can do it. We can do it. You know, Kalev in the end, he says, we can do it, but it's over. The, the, by the time that he has to say those words, we can do it, we can do it. The deck is already stacked again. Right. So there's a kind of thing when you're traveling. I had this experience many years ago when I was traveling in Europe. When you're in that mindset, you could you feel like it could go on forever. The problem is once you stop, it all comes crashing down. Yeah. So you could always pick up a few days later and keep moving. And I imagine I could have gone on a lot longer. But once I stopped, it couldn't move for quite a while. And the spies are entranced by the land, I think. But when they come back and they have to think about what they saw, that's when bad things happen. And so rather than let the land tell its tale, they tell the tale of the land. And it emphasizes, I think, their own role in the disaster that ensues. We need there's, to talk. There's, there's a famous line, one of the famous lines in, in the Parsha, that the spies after the, the spies say, you know, great land, bad people, we're not up to it. Kalev says, yeah, yeah, come on, shut up. You know, you're sapping the people's energy. And they, then they say, the famous line of Eretz Ochelet Yoshbehahi, this, the land devours its inhabitants. And there's a midrash on this, which Rashi quotes, which is that, um, I mean, this is not a great midrash actually for other reasons, but, you know, God struck all the Canaanites with, with a plague so they wouldn't see the spies. And so when they were traveling around, which was like a little unduly harsh of God to the Canaanites, but when the spies um, are traveling around, they, everywhere they go, they see funerals. And then they go, man, this is just like a terrible place. Uh, everybody's always dying here. Well, I got news for you. Everybody's always dying everywhere. Okay, <laughs> there's always death. And and if I were to say again, I, I think this is a sort of a well-intentioned thing. But if you, if you were to say where did it go wrong, I might make a little, you know, homiletical drosh or something and say um, it's promised land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everything's going to be great. Zavat chalavudvash, milk and honey. And I get there and I discover that it, we're all still mortal and there's all still death. 
and and we're going to have to figure out you know where the graves are going to go um maybe the people had a um childish uh unduly you know hopeful dreamy thought that this was going to be like a snap and it was going to be like a whole garden of eden and not the world it's it is it's the world okay um you know later on um the manna in the in the book of joshua the manna stops when they cross the jordan okay the desert is in a certain sense the dreamy world god feeds you miraculous food then you cross the jordan you come to the land you got to start farming you got to be like people in the practicalities of life and perhaps there's some aspect of the of where did it go wrong is that they saw that the spies saw there's like actual funerals here and um and that's you know so just a i'm sorry to follow up on what you say um Jeremy what's striking is that when they're in the wilderness they're Adam in the garden of Eden when they enter the land they are Adam after the garden of Eden where you have to work by the sweat of your brow yeah exactly right and we want to hold on to paradise as long as we can and as an adult you learn pretty quickly you can't you can't can we talk for a second about about the way the story plays out in in Jewish life and we didn't talk about this before but it occurs to me you know and we spent the whole talk uh, on on this part of the on uh, one verse <laughs> on the verse, but okay. So so God wants to destroy the people. Moses Moses says, "You got to overcome yourself, God," which is an audacious thing to say. And he re- reminds God, "Adonai right? You you're compassionate. Forgive this the people's iniquity by your great mercy." And then Hashem says, God says, Salachti Kidvarecha. Okay, so isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting the way the 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 authors, the editors, the architects of, of the Machsar of Yom Kippur um grafted this scene into the Kol Nidra Surah? Jerry, you want to talk about that for a second? Just like as as you as you alluded to or as you're pointing us to, uh, this is like the Kol Nidre uh, recitation um, arrives at this, and God is seen to say at the beginning of Yom Kippur, not at the end. Everybody, you know, everybody's failed, but there was like well-intentioned mistakes, um, and everybody was was a mistake. It wasn't in in. Jewish legal parlance, shkaga is a mistake that you make. Mezid is like a willful, you know, sin to, to just be defiant. Um, so we start off Yom Kippur and we remind God that even when we have failed, you know, rather significantly, uh, the divine is a, you know, a forgiving, embracing kind of presence. There's also a suggestion that our failure is also God's failure and that God is in need of repentance too. And so when we stand before the throne, as it were, on Kol Nidre, on Yom Kippur, we are B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, who is in need of forgiveness and forgiving as well. But are we are we also just projecting ourselves onto the the desert experience like what like we've said in many other conversations where you come into synagogue and you're the desert people so here at, at the critical moment of the desert experience you know uh you are you are that people you are that people that is wayward that is going to be wandering you're going to you know on the eve of yom kippur you're going to be uh 
you know, re reenacting a desert experience by not eating, you know, satisfying meals at all, um, <laughs> you are going to be asking questions over a journey. And Salah de Kidvarecha, in a sense, cues up the mind to say, look, you're, you're on the, you're, you, you don't get into the promised land so easily. Uh, you have to work now. You have to do something. Um, look, the other invocation is the is the uh, the golden calf. You know the the Moses and that catastrophe and the third. You know when when God reveals His covenant of compassion to to Moshe. Um, so we have these two key elements, and of course, you know we would say that that this episode in Bamibar is an echo of the golden calf because everything breaks down here, and from the breakdown you get a chance to to reconstruct everything. No. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, so we don't get a chance to to look at some of the other uh, texts here, uh, especially especially you know the the Mikoshesh Itzim and then the the Maftir, which is Tzitzit, right? Actually, tomorrow the Maftir won't be Tzitzit. If I, I you know these, now that I've been on uh, now that I've been away from the shul, I lost the calendar a little bit. I'm almost done with my time away. But isn't tomorrow Rosh Chodesh? No, Rosh Chodesh is in the middle of the week. Middle of the week, so it is. It's Mavarchim Chodesh. Oh, Mavarchim Chodesh. Okay. Anyway, okay. Mm-hmm. So we we have uh, a rather well known uh, uh, ending to this, which is the Lota Turu Acharei Right? Don't don't wander after your heart. That you are drawn after them. Okay, but. Uh, we have to we have to wander off here. We've reached the end of our journey for this parsha talk. But before we conclude, we say Mazel Tov, Rabbi Jeremy Kamalowski, on the engagement of your son. Tell us about what Simcha. It's wonderful stuff. My son Yedidia, my oldest son, is uh, is now engaged to a wonderful young woman named Ariel Balsam, whom we we all know from Machanim uh, Shalanu from Camp Ramah, and uh, Barry was her high school teacher. Um, at Solomon Jack River Long Island. And uh, so to Amy and I are looking forward with uh, Sherry and Ira Balsam to the wedding of our child, our children sometime. What an amazing, uh, wonderful, wonderful piece of news. We are delighted for you. Mazel tov. tov. And on behalf of the entire Parsha Talk community, a growing community of over 250 listeners. And, when, and of course, all of the people who are at Machane Ramah, hopefully we're going to hear this today, uh, we want to say Mazel Tov to Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky and the whole family. Mazel Tov. Thank you, guys. And uh, and by the way, we know that the that the uh, staff is already up at camp, and the children are arriving next Tuesday for another kite. Amazing. We are so so happy and thankful that you have joined us for this uh, these thirty four minutes and twenty eight seconds. Uh, <laughs> Great moment. On behalf of everyone, let's all just say good Shabbat Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. See you next week on the next edition of Party Dawn.